Hello, and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady. Uh, my co-host, Matt Scott, is not with us today. He's out doing something fun and overlandy, I believe. So we will talk to him on our next episode coming up. We do have an AMA plan, so ask me anything. So if you guys have questions that you'd like to pose to Matt or myself, please contact us via Instagram. You can reach me at scott.a.brady to provide those questions. And I've got a great guest with me today, a longtime friend, someone that I have traveled with in South America and several locations in North America as well, Sterling Noreen, who is a well-known filmmaker in the space. He is coming up on three decades of filming adventure motorcycles around the globe. And that includes the full length of the Silk Road, Africa, through Russia, through South America, of course, extensive travels in North America. So this is an individual that has enormous experience, both as a traveler and as a filmmaker, which I think will make for a very interesting conversation today. Thank you so much, Sterling, for being on the podcast with us today. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I'm thinking about some of the trips that we've done together. I mean, South America being one, we were both on Expedition 65. It was funny, just the other day I came across some helmet cam footage that I had. Remember when we were on, we were in Ecuador, not, yeah, we were in Ecuador and we got onto a racetrack and and we were all, they had us all lined up and I've got this helmet footage of me like flogging this poor rental BMW. You you imagine riding in a place like South America and you don't ever think you're going to be on a racetrack doing it. (laughs) Yeah, but that was so fun. I mean, I was, I was dragging pegs and nearly dragging the luggage on that thing going around the track. That was really fun. Yeah. I mean, that whole, that whole journey was, was excellent. And we even, I remember talking earlier today about how good of a job that everybody did just kind of being a member of that team and such variety of personalities and that we learned, we all learned so much about each other and people really had some great experiences on that trip. Absolutely. This episode is supported in part by Red Ox Manufacturing. Since 1986, Red Ox Manufacturing has been handcrafting the toughest soft-sided travel luggage in the world. Founded and operated by second-generation United States veterans, Red Ox bags are backed by the industry's finest warranty, the Noble Lifetime Warranty. You break it, we'll wonder how, then we'll repair it or replace it, no questions asked. Designed and lovingly built with pride in Billings, Montana, using 99% American source materials, Red Ox bags are unique and innovative and tough as tanks. And you made it all the way down to Ushuaia with that one, right? Of course. Yeah, because I, 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 I my bike barely made it, but I <laughs> I made it with my bike. Oh, that's right. It was that an eight hundred GS, right? Yeah, my clutch went out at thirteen thousand feet up in Peru. Oh wow! And had to get it back down to the dealership and get it repaired and finish the journey. So that was probably shortly after I left the group then, because I don't remember you having that mechanical because we were camped out at about fourteen thousand feet at that lake. Is yeah. that about where it happened? Yeah, it was probably within a matter of a few days after after that. Yeah, sure. And it was an epic night because not only did my clutch go out, but one of our team members was experiencing altitude sickness sure. and on the on the the verge of needing needing to be evacuated. And we ended up sleeping on the side of the road at thirteen thousand feet, you know, without having planned to do that that sure. evening and 
hauling the bike out on a truck from some locals the next day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, well, that's what makes for an amazing adventure. I, re- I remember after I left that morning, I just looked at the map and I saw this, this track that came out of the Andes and ended up coming all the way down towards the coast. And I just went for it. I had no idea if it was going to be a good route or not. And it ended up being absolutely fantastic through these colonial villages and all that. And I get down towards the coast and I'm in this little coffee shop and I'm talking to some locals that spoke English. And I told them where I came from. And they're like, you know, that that's where all the shining path. (laughs) I I mean, that's where ignorance is bliss. I had no idea that it was like not really a good idea to be riding solo on a motorcycle through all that. But it was just incredible how beautiful those valleys were and how stunning the Andes were in that part of the country. Yeah. And we went the opposite direction. We started at the coast and went up to 13,000 feet in one day. Yeah. And that's not necessarily the best thing to do to your body. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I remember a bunch of folks were not feeling well when we were camped out and that was a cold night. I had all my own camping gear with me on the bike, but it wasn't, I wasn't really set up for that probably 30, 35 degrees that we had that night. And it was, it was pretty cold. I remember being chilly and even getting up in the morning and seeing frost on the motorcycle when I was leaving the the lake, that was chilly for sure. Yeah. But that was an amazing, amazing journey Of, of all of of your travels, when you think about your journeys, uh, what was one of the ones that was your most favorite? What was the one that really stands out in your mind? You know, people often ask me like, what's my favorite place I've been to? And it depends on how you look at it or what you're looking for. I think Iceland was great for adventure motorcycle riding and natural beauty. Um, Travels along the Silk Road gave me a look into the the Muslim world and also just ancient cultures, cities that have been around for 10,000 years. Um, Africa, you know, the wildlife there is Mm -hmm. like nothing I've ever seen. And of course, going across Russia. It's just a, you know, growing up as a kid with the cold war Mm. in the background, it was really interesting to go through all these former Soviet countries. Yeah. And so they're all, you know, they're all special and different, different ways. But I think for me, what's really become the the most meaningful to me are the solo trips that I've taken. And I haven't traveled around the world solo. I did a big expedition by myself down in the Copper Canyon that really changed my life, actually, to be honest. And and so that's kind of what stands out in my mind when I look back at the big picture are some of the adventures where I've just had it off by myself. Mm. And what do you find that you learn or what do you find that defines this solo travel for you? Well, it's you're on your own. You have to be entirely responsible for yourself and your survival. And that's not to say that you don't get help along the way when when and as you need it, but it's a very different experience to know that you're out there on your own, Mm. whether it's dealing with mechanical issues or getting lost or quite often just dealing with the the other people that you meet, maybe not speaking the same language and having to, to communicate with people. I just I think it's a, a rare form of travel that mm. not a lot of people do. But if you're the right kind of person and you can have something to do along the way, like I do with my film and video, it can be really meaningful and really yeah. rewarding. Yeah, I think for me, I am such a social creature. I, I do enjoy traveling with others, but the times that I've traveled solo, like for example, coming back from Peru back to uh, Bogota alone on the bike, you spend a lot of time with yourself and you kind of decide if you like your own company. And maybe some of the things that we don't like about our own company become very obvious that 
those are things that we want to change about ourselves. And and until we get those moments of stillness in our own helmet, um, we don't oftentimes recognize either things that we want to change about ourselves or things that we want to change about our life. I remember maybe similar to your Copper Canyon trip, but for me, coming back from that trip and completely changing big swaths of my life because I finally had enough time to think about what I really needed to be changed about my life. And it gave me that courage because of that time alone to make those changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you find that to be similar for yourself? Yeah. I think that's part of it. You do have that, that time and that space to kind of reflect. And if you don't enjoy your own company, it can be uncomfortable. But what I've also found is that it's really what, what enables me to do it and that makes it enjoyable and possible is that I have something else to do. I'm on a film making mission when I'm out there documenting these trips. You know, I would suggest to anyone watches my movies and sees me out there doing these kinds of rides. They might have a very different experience because they might get to their campsite in the evening. And if they don't, if they're not making a video and they don't have anything to do, they might get bored and they Mm. might get restless. Having kind of a higher purpose to your trip, if you're going to go out there and do something on your own, I think is really important Mm. to know why you're there and what you're doing. And so then those other kind of existential thoughts can kind of take the background because you're on a mission and you're working and you're doing something and you're focused and your your mind has something to, you know, there's always another shot around the corner or another thing to look for. And maybe that could be, if you're not a filmmaker or a photographer, maybe it's that you're giving back to those communities that you're visiting, or maybe you're helping to do some philanthropy along the way and doing good as we go in another way. Maybe you want to journal. Maybe you want to work on that novel that's been on your mind, or maybe you want to learn a musical instrument or get into bird watching or trail running. There's so many things that you could do along the way that you could park your bike or your vehicle and your trip could become more rewarding and enriching because you have this other passion that you're bringing into the fold as well. For the listener, let's paint a picture of kind of this formative travel experience that you've had. Why don't you let everybody know what are all the big trips that you've done? And maybe when we get to the end of that, let's talk about a little bit about what you learned along the way with those. Well, I would say that when I look back on my life, one of the biggest trips that I did, ironically, was when I was 19 years old and I didn't look at it as an overlanding trip. I didn't even know what overlanding was at that time. I grew up in Michigan and my dad was up in Alaska. He lived in Anchorage. Wow. And when I was 18, years old and I'd graduated from high school, he said, if I wanted to fly up there and visit him, he would give me this old army surplus pickup truck that he'd bought at an auction. And it was a 1975 Dodge. He paid $400 for it. It was army green. And long story short, the next summer I flew up to Anchorage and he gave me that truck and I drove it back to Michigan, 4,500 miles. Wow it just opened my eyes and I ended up building a little homemade camper and lived out of it for a year while I was attending college. And the next summer I invited a buddy of mine to go back to Alaska so we could work in the fisheries. And so that summer that I turned 19, we drove from Michigan to Anchorage, spent the summer on Kodiak Island then decided we wanted to go to Mexico. So we drove down to Tijuana and then back to Michigan. And so that was an 11,000 mile road trip in a $400 vehicle when I was 19. Oh man, I love that. And it, I think when you're 19, you just have no idea what you're supposed to do or not supposed to Absolutely. do. <laughs> and and the fact that you did it in this $400 truck. And so. I replaced a one radiator hose on that whole trip. That was That's incredible. the only issue that we had. But it, you know, 
without knowing, like you said, what was possible or how you should do it by the end of that trip, it just kind of opened my eyes to the, the country that I live in, the kind of travel that's possible in a vehicle, that that was just going to be somehow part of my life. Oh, that is a wonderful story. So how do you go from a $400 military, ex-military pickup to riding motorcycles? What was your first motorcycle? When I was eight years old, my parents surprised me with a Honda 50, a little trail bike. Okay. And it just came out of the blue. I had showed no interest in motorcycling whatsoever. You know, we lived in West Michigan on a blueberry farm. So I had lots of trails and woods around me and it was kind of remote, didn't have a lot of kids in the neighborhood to play with. And so she thought this would be kind of fun for my brother and I to go ride around the woods. And so I got that little bike and pretty soon I was taken off on five, 10 mile rides, which is pretty big deal for an eight year old kid. (laughs) No doubt. I would load up my knapsack with a sandwich and an apple and be like, see you later, mom. And go ride for the afternoon. And so I think that's kind of where it started. But when I got in high school and college, motorcycling disappeared. My mother kind of did not want me to ride on the street or get a big motorcycle. It was too dangerous. My dad and my grandpa were both injured on motorcycles. I thought it was kind of funny that she bought me a motorcycle and started this and then told me I couldn't do it. Sure. So I finished college, no riding during that time, which was probably a good thing. But when I graduated, I moved out West to Seattle and I bought an old BMW motorcycle and I started street touring and did that for about four years, riding around the Northwest on an old airhead and really found that I liked everything about it. I liked being on the bike. I liked the riding. I liked the roads. I liked the travel. Um, The only thing that was missing was that it wasn't a bike that I could go off-road. And because I liked the mountains and the wilderness and the dirt roads, that's what kind of led me into looking towards what kind of bike would be a good bike to travel on those kinds of roads, but also go long distance on the pavement to get to those roads. Mm. And what was your first adventure bike? The first bike I got was a 1997 BMW F650 GS. Oh yeah, nice. And that was the year that BMW came out with their first chain drive GS. And so for me as a young person, it was kind of the first GS that I could afford. Um, It was in the price range. And so I went out and bought that bike brand new from the dealership. And that was my first adventure motorcycle. I've had three BMW motorcycles in 23 years. I had the 650, then an 800, and then the 1200. How how many miles did you have on the 650? Before I finally got rid of it, I had it for 12 years. I put 70,000 miles on it. Incredible. Yeah. And that's one of the most reliable. I think I've seen more F650s out and about in the world than 1200s for sure. And probably the only bike that I've seen with travelers more often would be like a KLR. Those are pretty ubiquitous when people are actually going around the world. That 650 just got such good gas mileage and they were pretty inexpensive and pretty reliable. They were popular for sure. Yeah. And then you got the 800 and is that the same 800 that you had when we were in South America? Yeah, it is. And that wow. South America trip was the last ride on that 800. I still have it, but it's it's just sort of sitting there now. You know, you know, I actually just thought of a memory. You and we were in maybe Baja or something like that. We were testing motorcycles and you were filming and you had you had just parked your bike, I think, on the side of the trail and someone just ran into it and knocked it down into a ditch or something like that. I remember I remember it was totally innocent. Like you didn't the only time your bike fell over the whole trip was when someone ran into it when it was on the side stand. Yeah, I remember that. I'm not surprised. My yeah. life is full of stories like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were just trying to capture some piece of film and your bike was being innocent up on the side of the hill. That's hilarious. Well, and then now what bike do you have now? 
I've got a 2017 1200GS, the Rally, and then I just picked up a new Husqvarna 701LR. Oh, that'll the, be fun. The long range. Oh, that'll be really fun. And what's inspired you to break away from the BMW trend? Um, honestly, I just wanted something that was smaller and lighter. Sure. Um, I'm, you know, the GS is great. I'm still going to keep that. It has has a place and yeah. lots of rides in the future, but you know, I wanted something a little smaller, lighter, more nimble so I could do the the more challenging roads a little easier. And when it comes time to pick up the bike, you know, it just wouldn't be as big of a difficulty as sure. this with the 1200. Yeah. And I think that those, those mid range bikes are becoming so much better for travel now too. Some of them you can get with cruise control. They have not just big singles. A lot of them are multi-cylinder, so they ride a lot more smooth. I mean, I think about the performance of a Triumph 800 or 850 Tiger compared to an 1100 of even a decade ago or more. I mean, they're faster, lighter, more comfortable. It's pretty amazing what they're doing with the small bikes now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this bike is definitely going to have its place in my stable. And, you know, it's just nice to have a choice when you have a a ride coming up to be able to choose the right bike for that ride rather Mm -hmm. than be limited by just the one bike that you have. People always say, you know, what's the perfect motorcycle? I think the perfect motorcycle is two of them or three of them. Yeah. What do they say? The, the perfect number of motorcycles is the current number of motorcycles plus one. N plus one. N plus one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That is what's, that is nice thing about motorcycles. You can have the, the most amazing BMW and you're maybe into it 35 grand, which is what a stock forerunner costs. Yeah. So you can really go all right. out. You can have like the ultimate luxury and the ultimate sparkling and everything else like that for a much more reasonable mm-hmm. price than a four wheel drive or a camper or a trailer would cost. So, mm-hmm. so much of your time as a traveler has been also spent as a filmmaker. You have done a lot of projects for other people. I know you've done a lot of work with Turatech and you've done a lot of work with other manufacturers and you have your own YouTube channel, which is motorcycle travel channel. So that's motorcycle travel channel on YouTube. And you recently launched a series called solo. Can you talk a little bit more about what inspired you to do that trip. How did you document it? What makes it different? Uh, Maybe give some insights into the listeners that want to document their own trips on how to do that. Maybe some of the gear you used. Yeah. All good questions. All good stuff. So the series, it's called Riding Solo and it came out last summer and it was based on a ride that I took last July, 6,000 miles by myself from my home in Arizona up to the Canadian border and back. A lot of the projects that I've worked with on the past, like Expedition 65 in South America that you were on, were group rides, were big group rides with a dozen people or more. Those are all great experiences, but they also introduce a lot of complications into the travel experience experience and particularly the movie making experience. Because as a filmmaker, you know, I go into those projects and I might have an idea in my mind about what it means to make a movie, but to get 12 other people in on that process can be quite a challenge. You know, I just wanted to do a project where I didn't have those complications and I could do it the way I wanted, where I had all the time in the world to film things the way I wanted, to stay in a particular location, to go hard, to go fast, to go slow. And so I decided I would just take off and film my own adventure. I also decided that I wanted it to really be an adventure in the sense that I wanted it to be a camping adventure. So from the start, I decided that I was going to ride 6,000 miles, no motels, no hotels, and that I would camp and cook my own food for breakfast and for dinner every day. In a nutshell, that's what it was. It ended up being a a 25 episode series that's on my YouTube channel. Each episode is about anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes long. And it's a pretty simple formula. They usually start out with some, some 
some scenic riding shots through different landscapes. And I really tried to get a lot of really good aerial footage on this project. I've I've spent a lot of time learning how to fly a drone, get the right shots, do it at the right time of day to really capture that, the beauty of the landscape and the bike going across the landscape. And so I think- question for you on the drone, did you use the, like the follow me functions of the drone or how, how did you capture those shots? Good question. And a lot of people ask me that. There's a couple ways that I do it. Yes, it does have a follow me function and it's pretty cool. It works to an extent. It can either follow you behind you or you can set it to like parallel track. If you go too fast or you get behind obstacles, it'll lose you and it will stop. But you can get some good footage that way. The other way that I do it is carry my controller on my tank bag and I'll position the drone in the air for what I think looks like a good shot. And I'll start, you know, hundred yards before the shot and I'll ride into it. And then just before I get into frame while it's recording, I'll take my hand off of the motorcycle and move it over to the tank bag and I'll start to fly the drone forward as I ride into the shot. So now you've got the shot, you've got the movement of the drone, you've got me going through it. And then I'll just repeat that process. Wow. Yeah. So you're riding one, one hand, riding one handed, (laughs) which you probably do that a lot, trying to film people from your own motorcycle when you're on trips. You know, I, I really, I don't. You don't do that. I ride with a helmet cam. You know, that's the way I get footage when I'm riding. But when I'm filming other people, I'm usually off the bike on the side of the road with a tripod and a long lens. And because that's what I've always tried to bring to my movies is more. I don't take shortcuts. I really try to, whether I'm filming myself or other people, I try to get up ahead of the group. Classic old school filmmaking with a tripod and a long lens. And it's like landscape photography in a way. I try to get that perspective and composition, but with a road and a vehicle traveling through it. I mean, just thinking of the logistics of trying to capture yourself cinematically solo riding, which means that you, you have to ride up, set up the camera, you know, get back to the bike, put all your gear on again. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, just... it's the story of my life. You know, <laughs> how many hundreds of miles have I walked to and from my camera? But the amazing thing is now when I started filming this way, it was probably my first trip to Mexico in 2009 was when I did this kind of solo filmmaking, all I had was a camera and a tripod. So I did everything that way. Now the technology has changed a little bit. The drone is my magic tripod. It's, you know, it's beyond my wildest dreams because I can launch it in the air. I can position it wherever I want places where I couldn't even put a tripod if I wanted to. And then I ride through the shot and I don't have to walk and go back and pick up the tripod. I just call it and it comes back to me. (laughs) And so it's, that's cool. It's really a game changer. I'm assuming that you're using the helmet cam. And then do you also have like a POV camera that you put on the handlebar to shoot back at yourself or another helmet camera? Okay. Yeah. I can mix up the helmet camera angle. So I basically use three cameras. They each have their own purpose. That would be my, you know, mirrorless camera that I would put on the tripod, the helmet camera and the drone, then weaving those together to tell the story. Yeah. And so going back to the formula for each of these videos, you know, it starts out with some writing to kind of give the viewers a a sense of place and where I'm traveling through. In the second half, it would be kind of the location, the campsite. I'll stop. I'll find a beautiful place to camp that's remote where I'm the only person around. I'll set up a really nice camp. I'll cook a really good meal, have a fire. 
and just kind of repeat that process. Mm. And it just sort of the same formula, but it just takes place in a different location every time. And it just follows me on this journey across the country, which took place obviously during the pandemic Mm. when a lot of people were cooped up and they weren't traveling. And so I think it allowed a lot of people to sort of vicariously experience some travel and some solitude and maybe see an individual's healthy relationship with him or herself in a solitude situation, sure. which a lot of people were kind of going through and wondering how do they cope in solitude. Yeah. So that just gave it sort of an interesting, came out at an interesting time. When we were talking earlier, you mentioned that you kind of intentionally eschewed the traditional travelogue where you're not just standing talking about everything that you're doing, that you're just showing the viewer what you're doing. Again, maybe again, that stillness of watching this person have an experience um, in a really authentic way, maybe. Yeah, I've really moved kind of in a different direction with my videos, with this project. And, you know, it's it, it's been interesting because some of the things were things that I'd been thinking about and working towards in a long for a long time. And I think some things just sort of naturally occurred along the way, but the essence of it is that they really slowed down. And the videos that I've been making lately have little or no dialogue in them. They're more meditative. They're more relaxing. They yeah. sort of just present the experience as it is without a lot of talk and explanation and personality or anything like that. You know, I've been pretty surprised at the, the, their reception. Well, your films have always been, if I can remember even some of the films that you've done, but you've done most of the Backcountry Discovery Route films. Is that correct? Yeah. Eight out of 10. And then recently you worked on bringing all of those 10 films together into like a 10 year anniversary series for them. And that launches fairly soon, right? Yeah. That's going to be premiered this weekend. And for your listeners that are probably listening later, it will be available for free on Vimeo on demand on Amazon. So you can just go to ridebdr.com to get all the information, Mm. but it's an 80 minute feature length documentary about the 10 year history of backcountry discovery routes. That series of routes, I think is one of the best executed route series that we've ever had in North America. I think the Australians have done a good job of similar projects, but I think it's one of the finest overall series of routes. And the number of people that I've talked to that said, I'm going to do the Washington BDR, or I'm going to do the Arizona BDR and people that are planning their annual vacations around going and experiencing one of those routes. And And they're associated with Butler maps too. Is that right? So there's, there's a team of people over there that have done a wonderful job of crafting these very remote adventures that are somehow accessible. Absolutely. It's a great team. They are really well executed and you can watch the film. You can buy the map. You can download a free GPS track and you can go to the website and get all the information about campsites or lodging along the way, or even real-time weather map. It basically, you know, gives you all the tools you need so that you don't have to really spend months and months and months planning out an adventure ride of that magnitude. Yeah. And it seems to remove a lot of the unknowns when we piece together our own adventures. Some of us really like that serendipity or the complete chaos that can come from coming from going someplace new and unknown. I think that one of the real advantages of the BDR is that in general, it can be ridden by a larger adventure motorcycle by someone 
someone of average skill and they can have an incredible experience along the way and oftentimes even interact with other travelers on the same route. And I also like the fact that I believe almost all of the BDRs or at least in some way or another, can also be driven by a four-wheel drive. So those that are listening that that have a four-wheel drive that would love to do one of these cross-state routes, just know that most of these backcountry discovery routes can be done with a four-wheel drive as well. That's true. It's just a service that I believe that has been made available to the community at a very reasonable price. These maps are very reasonably priced. And uh, I would just highly recommend that people that if you live in the West, most likely there's a BDR that is associated with your state. So you could even do it in pieces over a couple weekends, take a vacation for a week and go cross an entire state. That's right. And do you know if, have they worked on uh, beginning to piece them together where you could literally do like a border to border route? Is that something that they have there, done You know, yet? there's some suggested connector routes between where a particular BDR might end and another one might start. Yeah. But you know, you could already do the Washington BDR, then the Oregon BDR, then the California BDR, and you know, you know, the Utah and the Colorado. And then, yeah. you know, there's just numerous ways that you could connect these routes together. And the slogan for the new film is 10 years, 10 routes, 10,000 miles of adventure. Sure. That's 10,000 miles of logged out GPS tracks of rides ready to go with an infrastructure built around it. Yeah. And the cool thing is, is that it helps all these remote communities that don't have a lot of tourism Mm. and their economies aren't doing well. Now that the BDR has, you know, is sending hundreds of riders through these places in the summer season. These little towns are pretty happy. They're stoked to have riders coming through and have some life breathed in their economy, selling rooms and gasoline and food. And it's become a really cool thing that's, you know, enriched a lot of places in a really positive way. Yeah. I think that these routes like that are I think they have a lot of appeal and I think they do a lot of great service for the community. I remember when I got my first motorcycle, I bought this KTM 950. In fact, it's here in the shop behind us. I had no idea how to ride it. I didn't even have a motorcycle license yet. And I was leaving for the Transamerica Trail in two weeks. So so that experience of doing crossing the country on dirt on a motorcycle that I didn't really know how to ride. I mean, I'd ridden dirt bikes, but there's a big step up from a dirt bike to a 950. And uh, somehow me and the motorcycle survived it. But it was that idea that someone had put together this adventure that where I didn't have to focus on the planning and the route finding and everything else like that. I could go and just learn how to ride and learn how to survive off a motorcycle for a couple months. I mean, that was a great experience. And I think that these BDRs are a little bit more digestible than crossing the country. Yeah. There's a lot of resources. There's a lot of riders. There there are Facebook pages for every BDR route so that you can connect with other riders in your area and maybe share that experience together because we always recommend that people don't really go out and do these routes by themselves. Mm -hmm. They do go through really remote locations and, you know, it's best to have, have a team that you can enjoy the experience with and that can help you if you run into any difficulties. We're going to take a brief break and we will be right back. This week's episode is supported in part by iCamper. They make innovative hard shell and soft-sided roof tents that are designed to survive long-term overland use. Their revolutionary X-Cover won the Overland Journal Editor's Choice Award, eliminating the bulky PVC cover and also allowing for the fitment of crossbars for carrying bikes and kayaks. Their SkyCamp Mini is another award-winning design that provides a hard-shell tent in the footprint of a much smaller clamshell model. This is the perfect solution for smaller vehicles or on vehicles where rack space is 
is dedicated to other systems. iCamper believes that the best times are those spent traveling, discovering the world with those you love most. You can find out more about their quality tents at iCamper.com. When you were doing these big international trips, was that with Helge or who was? Yeah, that was with Helge Peterson with Globe yeah. Riders. And, you know, it's ironic that I, I spent 10 years doing Globe Riders travels with Helge's. And over the course of those 10 years, we did five expeditions that ranged in length from 37 days to 71 days. So it wasn't like I was full time riding around the world, but I did do some big big trips. I did that for 10 years with him. The last year that I did a Globe Riders project was the first backcountry discovery route. And so I spent 10 years traveling around the world before I actually cracked open the door and started traveling in my own backyard. Uh, sure. Helge is, is done trips like this literally for decades, decades and decades. He's a known personality in the adventure motorcycling space. What do you think were some things that you learned from Helge? What were some, looking back on that experience, what were some of those, that awareness that you had of what Helge had done or what he taught you along the way or what you saw him teach the people that were with him? Boy, absolutely so much. I mean, as a young motorcycle filmmaker, I could never have found a better mentor than him. I mean, he taught me everything from motorcycle mechanics, like how to fix a punctured tire, how to set up a motorcycle you know, what are panniers and how do you use them? Sure. How do you carry camera gear on a motorcycle? You know, all those very practical skills. But I think what meant the most to me is he, you know, he taught me how to travel, mm. you know, as a traveler, how do you interact with other people, the mindsets that you have to have for these difficult scenarios and situations. And, you know, you learn by example. And when you have an example in front of you of someone who's traveled around the world on a motorcycle for 20 years, you just pick up by osmosis so many things. And I yeah. was just so fortunate to be able to work by his side with him as he was guiding these tours for Globe Riders and, and being the photographer that he's always been yeah. to go there and film these trips. And he gave me complete freedom and authority to do the video side of the trips any way that I wanted to. So it was a really supportive, beneficial relationship really thankful to have had that opportunity to work with him for so many years. Yeah. And he did some beyond the tour guiding that he did where he did some significant expeditions, including the crossing right. the Darien Gap. And so he, he has an, an incredible history and it's worthwhile for those that are listening to research a little bit about Helge and learn about where he's traveled and some of his knowledge and experience along the way. But that is so cool that you had that opportunity to spend that much time with him. And it probably just was like going to Overlanding University in a way, because you were not only in these places where you were rapidly learning, but you were also with someone with a great deal of knowledge. Absolutely. It was priceless. It just meant so much to me. And yeah, I don't even know what to say. Yeah. Just so and many I, experiences, so many miles. Yeah. And he was just such a good person to travel with too. Solid, a solid individual. He just, I never once saw him upset mm. about anything. Yeah. Well, and I think you have to be that way to guide a group of people. Yeah. And he had some I think even on one of the trips that you were on there, you even the guys even had some very serious injuries and otherwise for what you'd like to share about it, maybe share one of those experiences and what you learned from seeing like tragedy unfold on a trip. Yeah. You know, I think about that. I'm, I'm at a point in my career where I've done enough projects and filmed long enough that I, you know, I spend a lot of time working on the current project or the next project, but I also spend a lot of time thinking about where I've been and what I've seen and kind of telling those stories as well. And one of the things I haven't really 
talked a lot about in any of my films are those difficult moments. You know, I have seen a lot of riders get hurt and get pulled out of projects or rides. I've seen helicopters come. I've seen ambulances. I've, you know, I pretty much seen it all. And fortunately, at least so far in my experience, nobody's ever been killed on a ride that I've been on, but I've seen a lot of broken legs and ankles and and that kind of thing. And it's, you know, it's not something you want to see happen to any one of your, your mates along the way on Helge's trips, you know, one of the first big trip that I did with him was from Beijing to Munich in China. One of our riders was struck by another vehicle and ended up having to go to the hospital. And he, you know, he was, he was going to be okay, but he had a punctured lung and broken ribs. And it was the end of the trip for him. Two years later, he went back to do that trip again. I wasn't on the trip that time, but there were three riders riding together in the Ukraine and they came around the corner onto a one lane bridge and a car was coming the other direction and impacted all three of them. And one of the riders was hurt really bad. The other rider that was there his second time ended up losing his leg and the third one was killed. Mm. He died on the way home. That was a tragedy. Yeah. The good news is that my friend that lost part of his leg on that second attempt went back a third time. He doesn't give up in his sidecar and he finished. (laughs) Wow. And he still rides today in his sidecar and he's, you know, amazing individual, amazing persistence, Mm -hmm. you know, to do that. I think about on the motorcycle stuff, I, even just a few days after I left all of you in Peru, one of the riders did end up having an accident, breaking a leg. And that does happen um, with surprising frequency. And I think if I consider it from my own perspective, it usually happens because we're riding too fast for our line of sight. That is almost always the most common. Now, there are freak accidents that happen that you have no control over. What I tend to find is if I can't see the road ahead, I will slow way, way down. Yeah, Because it could be, as you've seen traveling in the developing world, you can come around a corner and there can be no road or you can come around the corner and there is a chicken bus sideways trying to do a three point turn, or there is a half of a load of bricks across the road. I guess I've seen that enough where I base my speed entirely on line of sight. It doesn't mean that I don't ride fast in developing countries because I will, but only if I can see. I think that that is probably for the listeners, if I was to impart any advice on trying to say as safe as possible is if you can't see, get down as close as you can to that speed limit you see posted, which is usually pretty slow. Uh, You know, I've never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the way I ride. I would never ride faster than what I can see up ahead. And I just like riding slower in general because I like to stop. I like to see things. I like to take pictures. I would say to maybe someone who's new and getting into adventure motorcycling, I think I see a lot of stuff in this industry that sort of shows people all of these techniques about how you can ride adventure bikes and drift around corners and do wheelies and all this stuff, you don't have to ride that way. Like in my mind, there's a difference between riding like, like a dirt biker versus a traveler. Yeah. And I've always ridden like a traveler. I want to go the distance. I want to see things. I want to conserve my energy. I want my bike to survive. And so don't think that you have to get into this and and ride like a hooligan to have an experience or an adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Or an adventure. Yeah. It seems like that 
you can ratchet up, especially when you're outside of the developing world, you can ratchet up the risk super quick if you don't keep the speeds low. Yeah. And same here in, in backcountry yeah. discovery routes. You yeah. can, and you know, I'm not saying it's not fun and that there isn't a time and place to really rip it up. Yeah. Cause I do that too. But you know, if you're a beginner or just getting into it or whatever, you know, start a little slower, learn, you know, learn, you know, to get some miles under your belt before you think that you have to ride like that in order to survive or have a good time. Yeah. And if I look at a lot of the big round the world trips, it seems like that the riders that are on the small bikes, like the ones that are riding the 200s and the 225s and the 250s, they tend to just finish the route because they're going so slow. Uh, I remember running into a guy by the name of Stefano Melgradi, an Italian that had ridden around the world length of Africa and come all the way up through the Americas. And and he rode at basically the speed limit or less, which in developing countries is usually 50 miles an hour or 45 miles an hour. And he would ride at those speeds because he got better gas mileage. And he just said, it's safer. I can make it to the end. Yeah. And whereas on these big adventure bikes where you've got 150 horsepower or more on board, it's easy to do two or three times the speed limit before you know it. Mm-hmm. And the consequences of that, the sudden stop is a big problem. You know, it, it's really interesting because I just got this smaller motorcycle, this Husqvarna 701. And I had an experience this last weekend with that bike that really taught me a lot of lessons. And since we're talking about this, this subject of, of risk and riding and I should probably tell you what happened because I haven't told this story yet. (laughs) We're ready. We're ready. On my 6,000 mile riding solo project, I fell over once on my GS and I got it on the drone. It wasn't anything big. It was just a little tip over. I'd ridden in an OHV area just to get some different looking footage of going over some whoops and some stuff. And I tipped over. And of course, in the comments, everybody says, oh, get a smaller bike, get a smaller bike. And I think that's kind of funny because I rode 6,000 miles without falling over. It was a perfect bike for that trip. I didn't need a smaller bike. But that said, you know, sometimes you do want a smaller bike for some of the more rugged, rough stuff. And so I got this smaller bike and I've been out riding it and getting used to the smaller bike and what it can do and where it can go and those kind of things. And there's a road that I don't know if you've ever heard ever done down here, but it's, it's called the rug road. No. And it's over by the Aravaipa Canyon wilderness okay. north of where I live. And I've always wanted to go to the Aravaipa because it sounds sounded like it was sort of a, a paradise here in Arizona. There's free flowing water year round and creeks. And so I drove up there in my van and thought I would make a video of camping overnight in the van, a little overlanding. And then the next day I would ride my new lightweight motorcycle on the rug road. And it sounded pretty difficult. They call it the rug road because once upon a time, someone had filled a pickup truck with carpet remnants and put it on the road to stop the erosion and help give them traction on this really difficult, steep section. And so, you know, I'm thinking maybe I get up there and it's too difficult and I turn around. You know, that's kind of the mindset you, you have to have on these kinds of projects, especially you're going by yourself. You're like, okay, I'll get to a point and if I can't do it, I'll I'll just turn around. Well, I spent the night and I camped up there and it was absolutely beautiful and peaceful. And and it really was like, like an Eden. And I got up the next morning, started to travel further inland. And I might say at this point, I'm about 80 or 90 miles north of Wilcox, the nearest town with any kind of supplies, gas, food, anything. So I'm already pretty far out in the wilderness. And then I leave my campsite and for the first 10 miles, it goes up out of this this creek and onto like these different mesas, 
desert road, but it was recently repaired and maintained. So it wasn't difficult. It was kind of graded, but really steep and loose. And I get out 10 miles on that road to a place called Parsons Grove. It's an old homestead and things are going good. So I'm thinking I'll make it all the way through this rug road. Well, when I leave there, the road just gets kind of crazy. It got really rough and really rocky and really loose. And I rode up this hill and down a hill. That's kind of scary when you're by yourself and you're way out there because when you ride down a hill, you want to know that you can ride back up and out. Sure. Or else there's another way out on the other side. And I didn't know how the road was up ahead. But once I started going down that hill, I didn't want to go back up it either. And I got to the bottom and I went up another hill on the other side. And by now it's getting, you know, I'm riding over bowling balls and logs. Sure. And the bike is doing awesome. I'm like amazed. I'm like, my GS would, I would have turned around miles ago. Sure. And I guess that's my point is that, you know, everybody says get a smaller bike. And it's true. It can take you on more difficult roads, but it can also get you into situations that you wouldn't get into on your GS because you would sure. have turned around a long time sure. ago. <laughs> yeah. And so what ended up happening, happening, is that I got about three miles into this, this really difficult road. And by then it was about 1130 or noon and I was completely exhausted. My motorcycle had tipped over five or six times. I'd picked it up. I'd kept going. I was battered and bruised in my water supply when my camelback um, bladder was almost dry. I had less than a half a liter of water left and I'm sitting out there 13 miles from my van thinking I don't have it in me to keep pushing on this road I really have to turn around in order to be safe. Sure. And so I did. I turned around and it was just as difficult going back. And I only made it a mile and a half before I couldn't pick up my bike. I was exhausted. And I was sitting there and it was 12 o'clock. The sun was beating down on me. I had about four mouthfuls of water and I was 13 miles away from my van. And it got real. It yeah, got real sure. really fast. And sure. And I, I kind of like at that point, I'm like, okay, this is where the fun stops. Now I have to really just, you know, just be focused, be focused on doing the right thing, survival. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm going to have to walk out. I don't have any other option. I just, I can't sit here and just drink the last of my water and wait for someone to come. And so I started to walk out. I left my camera gear. I left my tripod. I just brought a GoPro with me because I didn't want to carry that extra weight. I walked up and down those hills back to that Parsons Grove and by the time I got back to there, which was still 10 miles from my van, my water had ran out. I was dehydrated. My mouth was dry. I was getting muscle cramps. I was starting to experience the beginning of heat exhaustion, which could lead to heat stroke. And so then I was getting kind of scared. I'm like, I, you know, I can't continue walking 10 more miles without any water in the midday sun. Mm. You know, I need to need to do something. And so I looked around and fortunately there was a manky little cattle spring at that place in the trees. And it was one of those little cesspools that you just find out in the middle of nowhere filled with leaves and algae and brown water and insects on the surface. And I sat down in the shade and I thought I need to you know, make a plan here to cool off, wait till the sun goes down a little bit to walk out. And I'm probably going to have to drink some, some pretty bad water. And if I catch Giardia, it's better than dehydration. Sure. As I was sitting there, I thought, you know, maybe a lot of resources in this old abandoned place that I could use to boil this water. And so I started looking through the trash and I found an old can of spam and I built a little campfire and I sat there for three hours boiling 
little cans of spam, wa- you know, water in those cans and pouring wow. it into my camelback. And over about three hours, I got it filled up. And then as the sun was starting to go down, I, I walked out 10 miles from there in wow. my motorcycle boots. Brutal. Back to my van. Brutal. And it was, it was tough. I was dead. I was dead when I got back to the van. I was so tired. And for the next four days, I was recovering. All the skin came off my lips when I got home. Mm. I had a dentist appointment a couple of days later and they said, oh my God, the inside of your mouth is like swollen and irritated. We've never seen like what's going on. So it was the real deal. It was the real deal. And, you know, it taught me a lot. I learned a lot of lessons about risk and adventure. Not to buy a small bike. And not to buy a small bike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great story, man. Yeah. And thanks for sharing that with, with us. Wow. Yeah, that that's incredible. the latest news. That's incredible. And with all of the things that you've done in your life in these really remote places, here you were a half a day from home having one of the closest calls with disaster that you've had in your life. It's true. It really is. It taught me a lot about the desert and, you know, yeah. this, I have a kind of, my eyes have been opened to, to this new, cause I've only lived here for three years in the mm. desert. So it's, you know, it's a beautiful new place that I love exploring, but you know, I've, I've got to be careful about what I'm doing and where I'm going and how yeah. I do that. And also I don't want to be irresponsible and encourage other people to behave that way. You know, yeah. I need to be a role model that shows people the right way to go about these, these things, Yeah, you know, because I do want to encourage people to travel solo on their, motorcycles, because I think there's a lot to be learned that way to do it responsibly. Yeah. But even role models can make mistakes. I, you know, I make mistakes on a daily basis. And, and I think that because you came out of it by making good choices and you kept your head clear that you, uh, you lived to tell that story, which I think would empower a whole bunch of people. So I think it's, it's also a really positive thing that mm-hmm. of course I'm glad you're okay, but from that you learned a lot. Now, do you think that you would would you bring anything different with you the next time you went out? Yeah, there's a Husqvarna few, a few things I, I would probably do different. I would bring more water, number one. I just didn't, didn't have enough water to be heading that far on an unknown road by myself in the middle of the day. So that's the first thing. Had I known what that road was like, I wouldn't have, I would, I wouldn't have done it. It, yeah. it wasn't an appropriate road. It got to where it wasn't fun. Yeah. Um, and even if I had to do it or wanted to do it, I would have done it with another person. Sure. And um, then do you think you would have brought a, maybe some kind of a satellite communicator, like an inReach or something along I was going to mention that, you know, I've never used those. They've been pointed out to me and recommended from so many people yeah. over the years. And in fact, a, a mutual good friend of ours actually gave me one that's sitting on my desk <laughs> at home. I just never have activated. Sure. I don't know why I've kind of resented them. I've always yeah, sure. just figured it's my responsibility to get me out of whatever yeah. situations I get into, but you know, I would definitely consider it pretty responsible thing yeah. to do. And it, you know, it really could save your life. The thing that concerned me the most, I guess, was that I was fine and I made it out of there, but what if I'd injured myself? Yeah. You know, what if I broke a leg and yeah. I wasn't able to walk out of there? Yeah. You know, that's, you know, where that could have been really really dangerous. Yeah. They can be a ripcord for sure, which I think is a crutch. And I, I see your point. I think it's very valid that people shouldn't see it as I don't need to prepare because I can communicate because what if that stops working? What if when you crash, it, it breaks right. when you go down um, or it goes with the bike when the bike gets swept away by the river or whatever, it's, it's easy for us to lose those electronic devices too. So I think you make a valid point about it not being a crutch, but 
in the situation of being solo, it may be the only way to save your bacon, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's an amazing story, man. Jeez. Along those lines, one of the things that I do like to ask on these podcasts and for someone with three decades of adventure travel experience and multiple laps around the world on a motorcycle. Talk a little bit about what you would recommend for someone who wants to be new to motorcycling, they're new to overland travel. What is some advice that you would give them? What would be the the words of wisdom or the pearls of wisdom that, that you would give them? before they started? Start slowly, but start, you know, start now. Don't think that you need to do this or need to do that first. I mean, obviously you have to get a motorcycle if that's what you're going to do, but I think you'll, there's more value in learning things that you need to learn by going out and doing it than getting psyched out of doing it because you need to prepare and do this and do that. Um, You know, for example, I never, I never took a motorcycle off-road riding course and I'm not saying that's a bad idea. I think it's a good idea to take one of those. In my case, they didn't really have those courses when I started, but it was okay. Like I learned from trial and error just by going out there slowly and appropriately and notching it up each time and learning that, oh, I could do that road. Maybe I can do this road. Mm. So I would, you know, just encourage anyone that wants to do that, that, that you can start, you can start right now. And also it doesn't have to be the biggest adventure in the world. You know, depending on where you live, there's probably a lot of great things right outside your own back door. And I like to think about it as like, say there's a person that wants to run a marathon or an ultra marathon. Maybe they do that once a year, but that's not the only time they go running. They probably Mm -hmm. go running every day or three or four times a week in order to do that marathon. And I think about that with overlanding that you have these big dream trips that you want to do, but it's just as important to make sure you're getting out every week for a hundred mile trip just in your own backyard, Mm. because that that will keep you in shape and keep you in practice and you'll you'll know how your gear works, you'll know what's broken, you'll know your systems will be dialed in just from those little short weekend trips. And so I do a lot of those myself. I probably get out once a week in my van and in my motorcycle and go camping. And there's places five miles from my home where I go camping just so I can be around my gear and my vehicles and using things and trying things so that I'm ready and I'm prepared for those longer trips. Yeah, that's great advice. Given the fact that you've also been a professional filmmaker for your life, what are some words of wisdom and maybe some insights onto equipment that you would recommend for someone who wants to begin documenting their own journeys? What What are some of the basics that you'd recommend for them? Well, we're certainly blessed with no, with unlimited choices when it comes to the, the gear for filmmaking that we have today. It's, you know, the cameras are smaller, higher quality and less expensive than anything I've ever used in the past. You know, it doesn't really matter what kind of gear you choose. It's all out there. All the the brands, the manufacturers, they have appropriate cameras and it could even be your iPhone. You know, it really comes down to the the story that you want to tell and, you know, what makes it meaningful to other people to watch, I guess. Right. Not the home movie, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's anybody can do it. It's not easy. The hardest part is really the editing and the time that it takes in in the long run. So I would say kind of like be aware of that and think about it because I have seen a lot of people that go out and get drones or helmet cameras and they use them a few times and then they realize that they have all this footage that they don't end up knowing what to do with. So, you know, if you are serious about it, just sort of go into it knowing that the filming is one thing, but the editing is going to be the bigger part of the work. And it's where that story really is made. Mm. And it seems like to me that if people focus on 
capturing good audio, clean audio. When you've got a lot of wind noise, even on your iPhone, you can plug in auxiliary microphones that you can put a windsock on and protector and and try to reduce some of that wind noise. I think that makes a big difference. Absolutely. Making it a little bit more of a stable shot, put it on a tripod or set it on a rock or something. Very, very simple tip, very practical. I would also suggest people to think about getting multiple angles. Yeah. You know, if you're whatever it is that you're filming, try to get a wide shot that shows the context, try to get a close up of the face of whoever's in the scene, then try to get a couple detail shots showing what it is that they're doing with their hands or on the motorcycle or whatever, and then maybe throw in a creative shot that's something surprising. Mm. And if you could just keep that little formula in mind for every moment when you're filming, you'll have such a better movie in the end. Sterling, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We have traveled so much together and I've learned so much from you as a filmmaker and you've inspired us to create our own productions as well. And I think that if people just hop onto your YouTube channel, they're going to get a real good sense of where you've been and what you've done and those lessons and stories that you've shared along the way, you know, kind of as a last question. And I do like to ask this of those that are on the podcast you have, and it doesn't need to be books. We talked about films earlier. Would you recommend, are there any books that you'd recommend or even films that you'd recommend that our uh, listeners pay attention Mm, to? Well, that's a great question. I could do a whole nother podcast talking about books and films (laughs) that have influenced me. Some of the ones I wrote down here for for because I knew you were going to ask this question. The journals of Peter Beard. Okay, he was um, kind of a, a New York socialite that was married to a supermodel and partied with the Rolling Stones. But he spent a lot of time in Africa and created these beautiful artistic journals of his life. You know, living in the bush mm. and. They were kind of hugely inspirational to me as a, as a young person. Um, journals of Peter Beard. Didn't he just pass recently, like within the last year or two? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's a great one. And then here's another one I want to bring up. And I don't know if you've heard of this one or read it, but it's called A Sense of the World. Mm. It's not that old, but it's about how a blind man became history's greatest traveler. It's the story of um, a guy named James Holman, who was blind in the 1800s. And he literally found a way to travel around the world as a blind person in the 1800s. And he he was like imprisoned in Siberia. He hunted elephants in Africa. He helped map out the Australian outback. And he became this travel lecturer after doing that. And then he just disappeared and history forgot all about who he was. But when we, you know, we think about what's possible or what isn't possible as overlanders. Think about being a blind man by yourself in the 1800s traveling around the world. That's fascinating. And what's the name of that book again? A Sense of the World. Okay. Very cool. I like that. How about some of your favorite films? Which ones come to mind? Well, as a motorcycle filmmaker, my probably one of the, the films that inspired me the most was by the Indian filmmaker Gaurav Jani. And he made a movie about 10 or 15 years ago called Riding Solo to the Top of the World. And in that film, he left his home in India and rode up into the Himalayan mountains on a Royal Enfield by himself. And he, he filmed everything by himself. He carried a, a television camera and a tripod. He would walk up the side of the mountains and set up the shot and walk back down to his motorcycle and ride through the scene. And it's a very beautiful, sweet movie. 
You know, he's he doesn't come off as this egotistical big adventurer. He's an explorer and he wants to meet the cultures that live way up in the mountains. You know, if you haven't seen that one, it it's on YouTube. It's free. Anyone can watch it. It's a yeah, really it's beautiful. really beautiful movie. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah, I remember watching that years ago. I really loved it. Well, again, Sterling, thank you so much for being on the podcast. How do people find out more about you? Give us again your YouTube channel. How do people follow you on Instagram or any of the other my face twits or Got it. On YouTube, it's the Motorcycle Travel Channel. I'm on Instagram as sterling.noreen. That's N-O-R-E-N. And the name of my company is Noreen Films. We have a website, a Facebook page. And then finally, there's the Jonquil Motel down in Bisbee, Arizona that my partner Eva and I run. And that's J-O-N-Q-U-I-L, the Jonquil Motel. That's how you can... uh, find out where I'm at when I'm not out in the desert getting myself lost and dehydrated. (laughs) And and your hotel is so cool. And Bisbee is such an awesome little destination. So people who are looking for someplace to go explore in Arizona, make sure you check out Bisbee, Arizona and the John Quill Hotel and say hello to my friends, Eva and Sterling when you're there. So thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next time.